Hey everyone, welcome to episode 11 of the podcast. This time Trumpeter and Snarky Puppy founding member Moz enters the vibe chamber. But before that happens, I want to let you guys all know that this is a video podcast as well. The show is streamed live to YouTube right as it's happening. So if you want to see full archived episodes, clips from the show, or you want to see when I'm going to be live next, you can check out the vibe chamber on youtube.com. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy. everyone how's it going it's been a couple weeks i'm sorry about that but now it's christmasy i hope you all like the um, my little bit of christmas decorations uh i hope everyone's been well ian miller from scotland you're watching ian's always here uh we have an amazing podcast today because mike marr also known as moz is here moz how you doing i'm good how are you scotty thanks for having me thank you for thank you for joining me i appreciate it um it's i'm still in college so these last couple of weeks are you know it's it's finals and so i was just like looking forward to this so much because i finally get to you know do something fun instead of just you know racking my my brain for school so thank you for being oh, wow. the, the first guest back where are you coming sure. to us from where are you coming to us from right now i'm i'm at my apartment uh, i'm in my home studio slash bedroom <laughs> um, are, you in, are you in the city i'm in brooklyn i'm in oh, Flatbush, nice. brooklyn Okay, yeah, I'm yeah. In, I'm in Bed Stuy. Oh, cool. Well, uh, what train do you take to, to get to Flatbush? The the Q train to Church Avenue. Nice. I'm I'm off the C on Fulton Ave. We had okay. A, we've had a bunch of stuff create. Like there was a fire. You know the Nostrand stop on the C train. Uh huh. Yeah, we had a fire at the Nostrand stop, and then a day after, there was a fire at the Utica stop, and I'm off Kingston. Right. So it's like, I'm just waiting for there to be a fire at the Kingston Avenue. The C tra- but, you know, the C train is like notorious for that kind of stuff. Yeah, the C train's kind of like the, the old train. You know, it mm-hmm. seems like it's going to be the last one to be updated to the new type of train. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. No, I know exactly what you're saying. Because a lot of the times I'll take like a late, I mean, not now, but maybe like earlier this year. Uh, I'm, I've, I've been here for about two years and, you know, you take a train, anything past 10 o'clock and you're on the subway from like 1963, you know, with the wood paneling and all that stuff. It looks like it hasn't been cleaned in a decade. Right, right. It's like screeching. <laughs> I know. Those are the worst because I've, I'm, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm neurotic about a lot of things, but my hearing is one of those things sure. that I just like, I'm so freaked out because my father has like really bad tinnitus. Okay. And so oh, well, my whole childhood, he would be, he couldn't hear like high frequencies because there'd just be this ringing over everything. Right. And so I'm just, I guess somewhat rationally, but to my extent, irrationally scared of um, uh, uh, getting tinnitus. So sometimes yeah. you're on that train and if I ever forget headphones or something, you're sitting there and you're just like in agony from the metal screech. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how loud it is. But yeah, the, the, I've had noise, noise canceling headphones, the, uh, uh, the Sony, like WM three thousands or WXM three thousands, they're fabulous. And do I don't they, know why. I didn't, does it I get rid of like all of the the like all frequencies or just Everything. the low end? Everything. Really? Like it's yeah, it's it's mostly low end, right? That's what you're you're mostly going to get. That's going to interfere with the sound in a headphone. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's everything. I mean, I'll, I'll get on the train and I can't hear. Fat. Really? <laughs> I got to get those because honestly, I've been yeah. thinking about that because yeah. I had a friend. We I was on the Long Island Railroad 
and uh, he was like, try these headphones. And I could I had never done noise canceling before. Right. And I was absolutely stunned. So I'm, I've been thinking about getting, I, I've heard of, I know Sony makes, I mean, Sony makes fab, fabulous stuff. And then I think his were either Bose or like, uh, can't think of the other brand, but Sennheisers. I think his were Sennheisers. Oh, sure. Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, so I might pick up a pair of those. But the yeah. one thing is, you know who, did you hear about Apple just came out with a pair of noise canceling headphones? No. They came out with, you know, the, the regular AirPods? Uh-huh. They came out with something called the AirPods Max. And they're, they kind of look like computer lab headphones. And they're $549. Jeez. So, I mean, I'm sure that's, I'm just hoping that doesn't mess up the market. And then the next time I go to try to buy like Sony or something, they're expensive because right. everyone just kind of expects that which Apple kind of does on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, they do have a weird... The other thing about Apple is they're, you know, and this is another example of this, they, they're always sort of um, treading in uh, arenas that they, they don't belong in. You know what I mean? Headphones, um, music distribution. <laughs> and they always, know, like, they always do a, like, they always kill the industry. Like they always somehow get to basically the top of the industry almost every time. Right. Right. That's what makes it terrifying. Cause it's like, crap, there's no company. Like, there's very few companies. It feels like could start something new. And then they are just the people who do it because sooner or later, someone like Apple or Amazon's going to come in and do something that like, right. is very expensive, but a lot of the times really good. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't have I, I have these these earpods, and I've never used the AirPods, but um, these are just terrible sounding for music. I mean, mm -hmm. I can't listen to music on these um, personally, um, you know. So I don't know that they're really, you know, and, and and iTunes is is a wreck. So I don't know that they're really knocking it out of the park. I think it's just the exposure that they have and the the kind of control that they can they can exert over those markets. Are you an audiophile? Will you only listen to music if it's on a really good set of speakers or uh, headphones? I'm not, I kind of am. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, um, I'm not, I'm, if I'm a snob about anything, it's, it's with music, it's, it's basically everything, but mostly, you know, the quality of the music. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not like a, a super snob about the sound quality, but yeah, if I, if I have to choose, you know, I want to hear, I want to hear things the best that I possibly can, obviously, you know, that just heightens the experience. I'm the same way, but I got to be honest, I get lazy when it comes to convenience sometimes. Cause sure, like, yeah. I, I, I will use wireless, wireless earbuds. Like I have a, a, a set of skull candies, which are right. like, I don't know, 55 bucks or something. Cause it's like, of course I want to, you know, listen on studio monitors and all this, but like, there are just times where I'm just too lazy to be perfectly honest. But every time I do it, I, I'll get used to like the wireless headphone sound and then I'll put on a good set of headphones and I'll go, geez, what the hell is wrong with me? Why was I listening on wireless this whole time? Right. Yeah, it's right. Exactly. You get used to it, but it's definitely, um, you shouldn't get used to it, you know? <laughs> That's true. Because then it becomes, you spend all this money to make music and then everyone listens to it on, you know, cheap drivers and they don't actually get to hear the quality. That's a whole nother discussion well mike real quick i want to go back because you said you're in brooklyn now mm -hmm. but i want to go back and get your, your backstory a little bit so where are you from originally i'm from milwaukee wisconsin mm -hmm. and when was it how old were you when you started playing music 
I was, um, I started playing trumpet when I was eight. Um, pretty much was a, was a musician from, you know, the earliest days. My parents have stories of me singing, you know, songs that I had heard when I was two, three. Um, started playing trumpet when I was eight in the school bands. And then around the time I was 11 and 12, I met a group of friends who were really interested in music. One friend in particular, whose father and brothers were all musicians. Mm -hmm. So at their house, they had a bunch of instruments, a bunch of guitars, a bunch of basses, uh, keyboards, drums, like basically kind of a whole music room setup. And this is when I was in seventh grade. And when we met, both of us being enthusiastic about music, we kind of you know, started hanging out every day. And I started to play drums during that period. I started to play guitar. Um, I started to sing. And then of course I was also playing trumpet and we just kind of explored. We, we learned things off of recordings and really educated ourselves, you know, by ear for, for a few years. Um, and then I went, we went to different high schools. I went to a, a Catholic college preparatory high school because that's what my parents wanted me to do and by luck the the music director at this school had been a student at north texas was a trumpet player and just a fabulous teacher uh, my grade school teacher was a fabulous teacher too she was a flautist and just super supportive of us coming into the band room and exploring and learning and jamming together um and and then when i got to high school my the the director there the music director at at my high school um had created sort of like a lab band like the way that the lab bands are at north texas a, a full big band with you know as many i think we had four trumpets and three or four trombones and five saxophones and, and we were playing um you know count basie tunes and the whole um you know tunes written by north texas you know composers and modern big band tunes. So it was a whole, you know, education in, um, in big band ensemble playing. And, you know, of course it's at a high school level and it wasn't a, a high school of the arts. I actually wanted to go to the Milwaukee high school of the arts, but, um, you know, I think my parents just, they, they, they're not musicians. They, they sort of, um, they sort of wanted to be safe and careful with me getting a sort of a general education so that in case this thing didn't work out, which to be honest, you know, I'm just, I'm waiting for the bottom to fall out next year, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I can understand, you know, their, their hesitation, but, you know, obviously my, my passion and my, my drive and my, and my luck and my experience has allowed me to, to, to continue to, to be a musician full time. Besides the high school, were your parents overall supportive of you wanting to go into music, you know, say yeah, college they were, in the future? Yeah, they could see that I was talented and that I was um, dedicated to it, that I was spending pretty much, you know, every hour of every day studying, transcribing, practicing. Um, yeah, and then I went to, to school for, for music at the University of North Texas. And, you know, at, at that point, of course, met um, as most people do who, who go to music school met kind of the whole network of people that I've continued to work with and, and learn from and, and, you know, and yeah, that kind of that, from that point on, it, the trajectory was pretty similar to most other people.
What was it that brought you to North Texas specifically? Was it the people that you had met before from there? Um, I went to see Berkeley, uh, and I think I looked at University of Miami and Cal Arts in California. It was essentially, it was, um, I got a scholarship at North Texas. Berkeley, Berkeley is, I think, incredibly expensive. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, just looking at the difference in cost for how much it cost me actually to get a four-year degree at North Texas versus Berkeley, it's like a fraction of the cost. So again, you know, I mean, I, I'm glad that I went that route. I, I'm, I'm sure that again, that my, my folks had kind of a hand in, you know, helping me think about, okay, well, you know, if you go to this Berkeley school, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be, you know, you could buy several homes, you know <laughs> what I mean? With, with yeah. the, the, the amount of money that it costs you to go there. And then, you know, I mean, for me as a 17 year old person, it was just like, I want to be a musician. I love this thing. I want to be around other musicians. I want to learn. And I really believe that I can do this for them. I think they were really thinking realistically, like, you know, what, how, and something that I understand now, you know, even as a successful musician, you know, um, how much money are you making? You know what I mean? You're not making doctor money, you know? So mm -hmm. if you're going to school, at a place where you're paying doctor fees <laughs> and you and you basically there's a very very slim chance that you're going to make it back in a reasonable amount of time yeah and north texas is an, is an amazing program you know i mean there's 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 you know a long list of great musicians that have come out and successful musicians that have come out of that school and i think particularly as a as a you know playing in a section in the big bands learning about just really playing your instrument with stylistically the, you know, the, in that tradition and uh, blending in an ensemble. And there's all sorts of other things that are going on there kind of outside of the, um, the realm of traditional jazz history. Mm -hmm. um, the scene in Dallas, um, you know, is, is, is amazing. Um, uh, the arts magnet school there, Turns out, you know, incredible musicians every year. And you've got guys like the, you know, the guys who, who I've spent time with now in Snarky Puppy, like, you know, Sput, Sean Martin, Bobby Sparks um, in particular. And then a whole slew of, you know, musicians who people might not know, but this is, you know, Erica Badu's camp. This is Kirk Franklin's camp. You know, so you've got this, this, uh, you know, Snoop Dogg's band, you know, you've got like a hip hop gospel, neo soul, like scene there. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, the mixture of those two worlds, while myself and guys like Mike League and Justin Stanton, Chris Bullock and Bob Lanzetti, Chris McQueen, like, you know, guys who, who didn't come from that Dallas sound, didn't come from a, um, black, uh, church, you know, gospel sort of upbringing, in sort of family life, you know, but came from a more, you know, just I, white side of things, you know, but have an interest, you know, yeah, but had a, had a serious interest in, in, in these styles of music, which are black American styles of music, you know? 
So, what, what was your focus when you were at college? Were you going there thinking like, I would just want to like meet people and play in bands or are you trying to like focus on impressing your teachers and, and specifically doing well in, in the school ensembles? Right. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I have to be honest. I, 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 I didn't have a, a, a very specific focus, you know, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to learn. I wanted to play. I wanted to be, you know, a great uh, trumpet player in the tradition of, jazz music you know i mean at the time my heroes were you know miles and freddie and dizzy gillespie and Wynton marcellus and roy hargrove and you know all the same heroes that anyone who's interested in this music has you know nicholas payton dave douglas at the time was a huge influence on me because his his sort of kind of different style and like his compositional style you know mm-hmm. um so i was kind of i was really at the time focused on being the best trumpet player that I could be within that style. Mm-hmm. Were you in any, uh, many bands while you were there? Yeah, I was, I was in uh, you know, I was singing as well, you know, and I was actually playing drums. Um, so, so yeah, I was doing, doing lots of things, you know, uh, uh, yeah. School ensembles, obviously snarky puppy started at that time. Um, but yeah, different, um, just jazz groups playing, you know, uh, playing at the local sort of watering hole in Denton, mm-hmm. Texas, which is a small town in, in Texas with a, with kind of a, like a cool little Texas vibe, you know, um, yeah. and playing, uh, society band gigs in Dallas, you know, all the playing, all the top, they call them top 40 bands. Um, mm-hmm. So the top, top 40 hits of the day, which, you know, at the time was like Nelly and stuff. Um, and, uh, and then I, I played in the Zebras, which is a, a North Texas ensemble that was created by Dan Hurley. It's a keyboard ensemble. And he created that ensemble so that uh, musicians who were interested in, in music that was sort of like post-jazz, like stuff like Steely Dan or... Um, you know, uh, fusion music, like weather report. Mm-hmm. Um, we did Jill Scott's music one year in that group, uh, and other kind of popular, like Neo soul stuff. And another year we did some other stuff that I can't remember. Oh, it was Steely Dan actually. And I was oh. singing actually. So I was, was singing. What was taking most of your time was singing or trumpet playing. I know you said you're playing drums as well, but was there one that was specifically like eating up the majority of your time playing? Well, I was definitely practicing more trumpet because, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what you play. What instrument do you play? I play the drums. You play the drums. Yeah. I mean, talk to any trumpet player, you know, uh, you don't get to take a day off practicing. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I was, I was really, I was really, you know, struggling with the technical aspects of the instrument, you know, and, um, as well as the, the language. Um, as far as singing, it was more, you know, I, I actually sang in the, in the jazz singers, um, which was a 12 piece acapella group. Um, so I did that as well. And I sang tenor and bass there. Um, it was, it, it was a lot of trumpet, but there was a good, there was a healthy bit of singing as well. Does singing just come more naturally to you than trumpet because you're saying you're struggling with the technique of trumpet at right. that time are you, are you just you think more of naturally gifted singer than you are a, a trumpet player 
Yeah. I mean, within the realm of what I'm attempting to do as a singer, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, a high tenor. I'm not like a, I'm not an operatic singer. I'm not a, you know, uh, I'm not going to go in and, you know, nail um, commercial singing or anything like that. But within the realm of, of things like, um, you know, like Steely Dan or like rock and roll singing or folk singing, you know, that, that style of singing is not necessarily, it's not demanding. Whereas in the realm of jazz trumpet, you know, that genre is a, it's, it's demanding technically on the instrument. It's also demanding intellectually on the instrument. And, and since you're given all that time, you're saying you're, you know, you're a huge like Miles Davis head. Are you thinking like I sing and that's what like comes easier to me, but I am a trumpet player. Like that's what my career is going to be. Is that kind of your thought process? Yeah, I think, I think I was open to doing gigs as a singer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was writing songs. I, I had been writing songs ever since I was 11, you know, playing guitar and writing songs. Um, yeah. So yeah, but I, I, at the time I was, I, I was, I was definitely thinking more like I'm going to be a, going to be a jazz trumpet player or something like that, you know? <laughs> and how long, in, how long into college is it that you, you get hooked up with Mike League? Oh, it was pretty early on. It was, it was, um, he got to the school a year after I did maybe mm-hmm. two. So we, we started playing together, um, in different groups, uh, pretty much immediately. And does he pitch the idea of snarky puppy to you or was it kind of a, a group, group effort to create it? It was his band, you know? So he, he, um, he actually didn't write all the music. We, as a group, the first iteration of snarky puppy was Mike league, Nate worth playing percussion. Um, we had a, um, keyboardist named, I'm going to forget her name. She was a Korean woman. Um, ah, shoot. I can't remember her name. Um, we're going to get an angry comment um, from her. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's not the case. She's like the nicest person. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and Chris McQueen was playing guitar and then it was a four piece horn section. I think Mike was kind of experimenting with like kind of a small, big man sound mm-hmm. so it was trumpet um trombone soprano saxophone and tenor saxophone um and so a completely different sound um and yeah he was writing some music for that instrumentation but the trombonist this guy named mike st Clair, who's who's still active as a musician a singer songwriter and a trombonist and plays with some pretty some pretty heavy artists um in austin Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote some, some good songs for the group and, um, uh, uh, everybody was writing songs for the group at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was Mike's, Mike was booking the gigs. You know, he was talking to the guy at the coffee shop on campus, like getting the gig. <laughs> is there, you know? Is, you know, you're all writing the music and, you know, he said, Mike's kind of leading the thing. Is there any discussion of between you guys of saying like, what is the, the style we're going for? Were you, were you thinking of, you know, he said, so it's, it's a much different style of music back then were you kind of focused on reaching a certain point or is it just kind of throwing the shit at the fan and seeing what sticks yeah it's definitely throwing 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 the shit at the fan um i think to varying degrees different guys were studying arranging you know um i know mike was he was writing stuff for for big band at the time and um 
yeah, was interested in kind of learning about that, that world. So um, we all were to a certain degree. That's a school where you study arranging as part of your, um, and when I say arranging, I mean like arranging for, for big bands, like horn ensembles, ensembles with, you know, with a lot of horns and kind of learning, you know, where the, the Barry Sachs fits in, in a C7 sharp nine, you know what I mean? Yeah. That kind of thing. And what, when is it that like now you start, things start taking off? When is it that you go like, Oh, I think I'm going to really focus the majority of my time to this group specifically. How long into college is that? Or is it post-college? You know, it was, it was definitely post-college. I, I graduated at the end of 2004 and then I went on the, the road with a, with a swing group, five piece swing group for most of 2005. And I, I moved to New York um, at the end of 2005 and started just doing um, whatever I could to survive. You know, I was working gigs up here, doing uh, delivery service and stuff like that. And, and then just kind of meeting people, getting random gigs, you know, playing, you know, the $50 gig at Rockwood or whatever, you know what I mean? Um, and yeah, singing and playing trumpet still. And in 2007, Mike, the band had continued to go on. He had started touring the band. He had started, um, you know, doing little tours, like four or five gigs, going to Louisiana, playing in Texas, you know, playing in uh, Mississippi and all that. And uh, Jay Jennings was playing trumpet at the time. And then Jay got a gig with, I think, the Polyphonic Spree. And Mike called me up when that happened and he said, I look, I know you're doing your thing in New York, but would you like to do the tours with us? And I was like, yeah, of course I'll, I'll, I'll spend a, a portion of my year doing, you know, doing like a, a few weeks here with here and there with you guys, you know? And is, was it just touring the country at that point? Are you, are you going overseas then? Yeah, it was, it was the U S until 2012. So it was about five years of kind of circling the, from Texas, like making our way, you know, in a driving ourselves, you know, doing everything ourselves, um, uh, as a ragtag group of, you know, 23 year olds, just, <laughs> just, just making a mess, but making a way up, up the East coast and then into Canada and like kind of down through the, down through the Midwest. And so are these, like a, are these tours just basically like except for the actual playing, are they basically just like unorganized shit shows in terms of getting from place to place? Or do you have like, was it, was it a well-organized thing at that time? It was, well, I mean, you know, Mike league is, is an incredibly hardworking person. So, and, and has always had a sense of um, responsibility for the group. He always feels a sense of responsibility that, you know, while he's, you know, funding these tours. And while this is kind of like his baby, um, that everyone else is particularly at this time. And for many years afterwards, not making, uh, anything like the kind of money that one should make when you go out on tour for three weeks or a month or a month and a half. Yeah. For the amount of work that you guys are doing. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and, and everyone's driving and, uh, everyone. So yeah, so it was a collective thing you know, Mike was funding the operation. Mike was booking the, the tours um, and he did a good, good job, you know, but even, even with that, you know, you're still dealing with an, you know, an incredibly low amount of capital 
you know what I mean? To, to put gas in the van, to rent the van, to deal with all the things that, that we know that, you know, an organization that is on tour needs to deal with, you know, Mm -hmm. just getting the hotel sleep, you know, figuring out if somebody we, we know can house the band. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, all of those things need to be taken care of. And it's an incredible amount of work for, for a person to do, to make sure that 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 happens. And I, I think he always did a good job and he's, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a kind dude and he's, he's hard, like I said, hardworking and um, yeah, but not organized. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a mess, you know, we were just having fun. Um, Yeah. There was, we made it through together. You know, we figured things out, you know, when the tire blows, you know, everybody kind of springs into gear and this guy's better at doing this thing. This guy's better at doing that. And um, yeah, it, it was, it was definitely a group effort. And are you guys at that point, are you just like, are you acting like a bunch of 23 year old guys? Are you just going and out and partying every single night? And then basically everyone splits up and meets up the next day. Or are you guys kind of going around as a whole, as a group? I mean, yeah, we got to go around as, as a group, you know, like um, everyone's got to make it to the next city every, every day. Um, but yeah, there was, there was a whole, everyone has kind of a different, you know, vibe, you know, some guys are, are interested in, in meeting girls, everyone's interested in, in, in being great at music and learning and, 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 and putting on a great show for the audience every night. And everyone held themselves to a very high standard. We, we all held ourselves to a very high standard and each other to a very high standard. Um, and when you're, yeah, when you're in, you're in your early twenties and you're, you know, and you, you don't know much about, uh, life or touring, um, and you're, yeah. And you're working hard. I mean, you're waking up early in the morning, you know, driving four, five, six, ten hours to the next city, you know, loading everything that a, a band like Snarky Puppy with a, a full percussion setup, drums, a bunch of keyboards, you know, whatever, loading all of that stuff into the club, playing the gig, talking to prospective fans selling merch loading everything out and then driving to whatever place we're going to sleep this is every day so if you need to you know unwind a little bit you know feel like you're having some fun you know as a 23 year old i say 23 i mean we were who knows but um yeah around that age around that age you know i mean yeah you're just kind of having a good good time and it's not it's about the the passion for the music and for the for the fun of exploring the world together Ex- you know exploring different cities going to barbecue places you know meeting other musicians other bands that are doing the same thing and like learning from them talking to them talking to club owners um talking to girls you know what i mean um yeah it's you know it's a lot of fun it's a lot of work it's crazy it's 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 a total it's a total crapshoot as to whether it's gonna anything's gonna come of it ever but it's um yeah if you have the right attitude about it i mean it's just a really exciting thing to do at that it during that age 
are you are you thinking at this point like how the hell are we touring around you know down this east or up or down the east coast playing instrumental fusion music has that ever come to play because now like because if i were in that time and i were the age i was now and someone said hey there's this band they're making instrumental you know basically fusion music and they're you know they're selling they're they're touring i would be like there's no there's no way and until you guys came around i don't know if there was a way because I can't, I can't even, now I can't even imagine people doing that. Are you thinking this or is that just not even on, on your mind at that time? Well, it's like I said before, like I'm not, I'm not the type of person, you know, I'm not the visionary of the group. <laughs> the way that my mind works is much more, um, is really much more creative. You know, that's what I know about myself at this point. You know, League is definitely a visionary. I think he was, he was, he was thinking if we can just get from city to city, you know, 10 people are going to be here tonight. Maybe 10 of those people tell their friends, maybe we put on a good show. You know, we build this thing one night at a time, you know, mm -hmm. he understood that. Um, I don't know that I was really, I was there to, to play. I wanted to play. I was getting a ton of experience playing um, and cutting my teeth and I was having fun. These guys are fun dudes. They're, they're all serious as a heart attack about music um, good people. And, you know, aside from the fact that none of us were making any money, it was everything about it was ideal and the, and the driving and the not sleeping and the loading everything in and out, you know, for the time that you're on stage and for the time that you're meeting people, it's, it's really a wonderful thing. And yeah, I didn't personally, I didn't have a whole lot of, um, I just wanted to play, you know what I mean? Is that I, what kept you going that whole time? You know, not having any money coming in really. Was it just the the love of playing that was keeping you from, you know, bailing out and saying, I got to go, I got to go get a job guys, you know? Well, I did have a job when I, you know, when I, when I came back to the city, that's when I made money, you know, like we're, you know, working at a bookstore or whatever, you know? So it was like a vacation almost to you. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. And so the band starts to, to gain some clout and you, and we get to about 2012 and your debut album, Moz, comes out. Mm -hmm. Right? Am I right about that timeline? Yeah, 2012 was the release of that, yeah. So when it first comes out, you start opening up for Snarky Puppy on tour. Did you find that your music suited that type of audience well, or did you kind of have to warm them up to it? At the time, yes. Um, definitely. The, I did just a few opening slots um, in front of Snarky Puppy, because I think at a certain point myself and Mike started to feel like it became a little incestuous, you know, the whole, the, basically the members of Snarky Puppy, many of the members of Snarky Puppy were my band and still are in my band. Right. Um, so it kind of was a little weird and, but people loved it. You know, the band played my music wonderfully and we were exploring in that way. And um, I don't have any trouble stepping into the role of, singing and being a front man in that way and expressing that part of my musical personality. And I think it was sort of a novel thing for people to see too, you know, mm -hmm. who didn't know that that was a part of what I do. Um, so yeah, it was, it, it was sort of short lived, but, but it was, it was cool. Where'd you record that album? Various places. There's a, a studio in Dallas called, January Sound. I think it's still there, actually. JT posted something on Instagram of him 
recording there. Um, so a good bit of it got recorded there, like kind of like what people would call the beds, drums and all that kind of stuff. And, and then there was a studio in New York called the bunker, a guy named Avi Gunther who went on tour with snarky puppy for a little while as our sound engineer. And also like our merch guy and like, you know, tour manager, you know, like this sort of like that guy. Um, what, what year is that, that he's on tour with you guys? It was like probably rough, yeah, rough uh, like era 2011 because the, you know, like you said, the, my first EP came out in 2012. So I was recording that stuff. I think a lot of the beds got recorded in like 2009. Oh, you so know? there was, there was a, a, basically a two year process till it actually got released or three yeah. years. Right. Yeah. Right. So January sound in this place called the bunker. And then I think Atlantic sound, which has moved around, but there's a guy named Diko Shuturma who has done some work for Snarky Puppy as well. Um, who, who recorded the vocals, engineered and recorded the vocals for the record. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a process, you know, of just getting some money together and being able to do these different sessions to kind of piece together the album. Yeah, how did you get that, the, the funding for the album together at, at that time? Well, some of it was just me just scratching it away. Mm -hmm. um, I, I actually did do a um, Kickstarter campaign for that one. So must have been the, That must have been... Actually, I don't know. I was gonna say it's the early days of Kickstarter, but honestly, Kickstarter might have been founded like 30 years ago. I have no clue. No, no, I think it was. I mean, it, so many people were doing that at the time. I mean, the, the thing about that time that was really interesting is a lot of these internet things that we take for granted right now were starting just then. You know, yeah, Insta Instagram was 2011, I think, and now think about how a major part of society Instagram is now. It's only nine right. years ago. Right. Totally. How, how much did you raise on that Kickstarter? It was just. I think $5,000 or something like that, or maybe 6,000. And did you that know, pay them that pay the majority of the recording costs? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was doing stuff cheap then, you know, how'd you distribute it? Was there services back then? Cause I know now you can, you know, get DistroKid CD baby. Were there services back then for that? And were you doing it yourself? I was, I was selling it at shows. Um, it was also on the shoot. Yeah. That's interesting. I think it was on Bandcamp, and I'm not even sure if Spotify was a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was, it was very new. So yeah, I think was Spotify on... was around that. I think it was around like 2012. So you might've been right before it. I think just the best of my knowledge off the top of my head, I think it was, it, it was right about then. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I... what were you going to say? Sorry. Just, I was basically just selling them at shows. You know what I mean? Again, I didn't have, I didn't have some sort of visionary, like entrepreneurial plan for the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So wait, in that same year, Mike founds the Ground Up label, right? Uh, and and now you're signed. Or you're, I know your last album was signed. Um, yep. Was there any hesitation to sign to his label specifically as a solo artist, or was it just kind of a, a no brainer for you? There, not really. I mean, I think, you know, the I think it's particularly at that time, it was sort of like just a like a figurehead. You know what I mean? Like a, like a, the way that a lot of labels are now, which is just kind of a collection of people that basically we have to have a name for a label essentially. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and my relationship with him obviously being, uh, trusting from the work that we had done together over these years. Um, and, and the contract being 
basically just we're going to license and distribute for a limited amount of time and it, you know it's a very favorable split to the artist i wasn't worried about it um so he didn't have to really sell you on it he wasn't like here we can do this but you know you'd have to give up this it was it was pretty cut and dry yeah there wasn't much that i would have to give up you know and and it was kind of like in my mind you know this this is stuff that i've thought about a lot more since that time um but in my mind, it just sort of seemed like maybe I'll get a boost from this. Maybe I won't, but I, I'm not going to be losing much. You know what I mean? There's not. There's it was not a it was a win win no matter what. I thought I thought so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the second album, Idealist, comes out four years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that also a long recording process like the first one? Yeah, it was a little shorter. I, I think we started recording like 2015. I did a one long session at a place called the carriage house, which is in uh, Connecticut and Stanford, Connecticut. This is with uh Sput and Mike and Bob and Justin. Mm-hmm. And we stayed Justin there. was just on my show a couple weeks ago. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 You mentioned that when, when you were asking me, uh, to come okay, on. Yeah. And... I, I probably, I, I probably did. I can't remember. Honestly, my memory yeah. is so shot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's all good. Um, yeah, so it was a little bit. It was a, it was a shorter process. I I think I started recording in 2015 and and finished the recording in 2016, and then did all the mixing and mastering and released in 2016. Did you do the mixing yourself? No, um, a guy, uh, Nick Hard, mm-hmm. did the did the mixing for for Idealist. He did Culture Vulture too, right? Wasn't that his first Snarky Puppy record? I think so. Yep. Okay, and what what is it that happens between? But not just I'm you know excluding the actual creational process. What happens in those those four years between the albums coming out, uh, and and was there a lot that kind of changed your approach in terms of your writing for the second album? Yeah, big time. I, I think um, you know for the first album it was kind of a like a hodgepodge of like rock and like sort of soul stuff, um, and I. For the second album, for Idealist, I spent a good bit of time. I think, as, as is the case with probably every artist, every time you make an album, it's just this wonderful process of kind of putting your artistry and your relationship to your own musical identity through like a pressure cooker. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So for the first album, it's just, okay, I got to write some songs. Okay, this is cool. You know, this sounds like a good lyric. Um, bring it into the band, workshop it a little bit. You know, thankfully, I, I know musicians who are just fabulous and flexible and have all sorts of talents. Were you guys rehearsing um, ahead of time outside of the studio? Not a whole lot. You know, I mean, ultimately, it comes down to how much time can you ask people to spend? You know yeah. what I mean? And obviously I don't have, you know, um, record label money to be paying people for like, you know, we, a week of rehearsal. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so it's more kind of like, all right, come to the studio. We'll learn this stuff. We'll workshop it. And these dudes, you know, music, the kind of music that I write, which is kind of more, it's not heavy jazz fusion. You know, it's, it's, it's in the realm of singer songwriter influenced by you know, jazz and soul and rock and pop. Um, these dudes can kind of just nail this stuff 
mm-hmm. within a few. So times. you weren't worried about it going in. You were just like, we're they're gonna they're gonna kill it no matter what. I wasn't worried about it going in. The interesting thing is that I'm really particular, though, about and everything every- or certain things specifically. It not everything. I'm actually really loose with certain things because my I have it. My artistry is coming from who I am and what I do. So I'm definitely an improviser as a singer and even kind of in the process of producing and creating a song. But there are certain things, um, certain voicings, for example. I, I often am very specific with Justin, who's played the majority of the keyboard role in, in my band. I'm often very specific with him about on certain songs that this particular song, this type of voicing or this exact voicing is what's going to give the song its sound. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting thing to say to a jazz musician because we particularly keyboard players in the, in the realm of, of jazz look at a chord and they say, well, this chord could be all these different things. But to me as a composer, I sometimes am that way. Certain songs of mine have that flexibility because I feel that they're coming from styles that where that's the, the way to do it. Other songs, there's not that flexibility, you know? So what I've learned over the course of these years is that I'm not worried about whether these guys can handle it or not. I'm worried about whether they will, they will trust me and get on board with my vision. Do you ever have issues with that guy saying like, like, look, I know this is your music, but you know, uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a cat too. I have some ideas. Does that ever happen? Or do they just, are, are, are they just kind of, you know, full steam ahead trusting in, in what you say? I mean, they're definitely not full steam, steam ahead trusting in what I say. I mean, there's, <laughs> I've known these guys for too long and we've spent too many years, you know, exploring music together and exploring ideas and different ways to do things. And I'm, I think every leader who is has enough ability to really be able to hear things flexibly. And I think anyone who's studied improvised music, you know, is going to have that kind of frame of mind and definitely me. Um, I, it's always a give and take in each conversation, each sort of, realm that you delve into there's always a conversation there's always some bit of explanation like you know i I, during idealist i was sort of on certain songs i had written very specific drum parts for spud are you writing these out physically or are you just kind of are you making like audio tracks for him to listen to audio audio tracks so i wasn't writing anything down on paper we this group of musicians and definitely me I'm more interested in kind of creating a demo that people can hear because I, I believe that when a musician learns something by ear the first time they really know it. Oh yeah, Um, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm that way to a T like I can, I could read something 30 times and then go take the music away from me. And I might be like, Oh shit, what's the next part? What's going to happen? But if I spent, if I do like three times through or a couple times through with the audio, it's so much easier. I mean, I think that's just more innate. You know, it gets it goes in deeper almost. Yeah, I mean, I I think that you are literally accessing a different part of your brain. Yeah, you know, you're accessing this musical oral part of your brain where there's all these connections being made. Where 
everything is in relation to everything else in an oral way. Mm -hmm. So if I'm learning a melody of a song, I have to know how it relates to the bass to be able to remember like kind of where the, what interval I need to be on as opposed to looking at something on a piece of paper and then I just play what I see. Mm -hmm. You're using a different part of your brain. Um, anyway. <laughs> so wait, do you know going in the, like you said, the certain things with voicings are things that you get particular about, but do you know going in with your demos, like these are the parts that I'm going to be really picky about. And these are the parts that I'm going to say, eh, you know, kind of take liberties with, or is that kind of all on the spot that you're figuring this stuff out? I think I know better now than I did, you know, four years ago or six years ago. Cause I sort of understand what my sound is better than I did. Um, yeah. And I, and I think when I'm writing as a writer, I definitely feel, I, I get a sense of what, I do get a sense of this is important. Like this needs to be exactly this way because this is telling part of a story usually, mm -hmm. or this is working with, you know, this melody is, is rhythmically working with this drum part, which is working with this bass part. And there's a conversation going on between those things. So that is important to me. So in that case, I know that that's part of what I'm, it's part of the process of the composition. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. and other Do you ever... things... Sorry, keep going. Well, and other things that you know that, oh, this could, you know, this could flex in this way or, the, or, you know, in this particular song, actually the guitar player can do whatever he wants. You know, whatever Do you ever purposefully wants. go against your kind of style of writing as like an exercise to see like, can I be looser with the things I'm stricter about and maybe stricter than the, with the things that I'm usually looser about? Yeah, I, I do, particularly at the more adept I get at writing songs, I, I do more and more tend to have a sort of limitations for myself now. And because I just recognize that one's creativity is boundless. And if you don't give yourself some sort of arena to play in, then my creativity is going to get lost in infinite, in infinite space. Mm -hmm. So it really helps creativity, I think, to, to, to bind it to something specific so that all of the creative energy can be poured into something and you don't just end up like writing a, you know, a piece that'll take you for the rest of your life. You know? And how long, well, how long does it take you to write you know, a song on average? Is it like a one sit down type thing for the basic core or are you splitting this up between days to get the song finished? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of depends. You know, some of them will come out I've had times when, when a whole song will come out in one sitting, um, at least musically, and then I'll go back and I'll write lyrics. Um, so the I've music had, does the music usually come before the lyrics in terms of your writing? It has, but as I've gotten, as my, I've become more, I've, I've developed an understanding of what works for me, um, particularly in the last couple of years, it's become obvious to me that writing the lyrics first is a better way for me to really get a cohesive thing because the English language and lyric and, you know, meter and rhyme are really, I think lyrics are just, I mean, for one, this is one of the things that I really studied between my first EP and Idealist was, was actually the process and, and, people's process of writing lyrics and studying um, great lyrical constructions from 
the history of songs that I, that I appreciate. Um, yeah, I mean, a lyric is a, is a, it's just a, it's just a harder thing to really make come across because people are really listening to, to a story mm-hmm. and one word, you know, in the right place has a very specific meaning. You know, I don't feel that way about music, although that's true of music too. Like the sharp nine has like a very specific, I wouldn't call it a meaning, but it, <laughs> It's a feeling. It's a feeling. Yeah. Are are there any particular themes that you find you tend to go to in terms of your lyrics, like the actual content of what the song is about? Yeah, I tend to write, you know, on idealist, there's a lot of sort of social political ideas, you know? Um, So just thinking about how groups of people work together, how societies work, how people treat each other, how power structures work. Um, I, I, I write about metaphysical ideas as well. I'm really interested in um, how we as human beings experience our reality, our existence. Is that something you think about a lot outside of just the writing process? Big time, yeah. I'm, I'm really, um, I've always done some form of meditation. I was into yoga for six years and for the last 11 years of my life, I've been studying the Alexander technique, which is a, a mindfulness technique. Um, How does, is there a, a way to explain that, that I would understand? Cause I've, I've never heard of it. <laughs> it's a, it, it's a, it's a technique that was, that was founded and, and um, worked out by a guy named FM Alexander uh, around the turn of the 20th century. Um, mm-hmm. he, he died in like 1955. Um, basically this, this man spent a, a many years of his life studying problems that he was having as an orator. He was a speaker. He did Shakespearean, um, recitations. He recited, that was a thing that at that time people did, like they did performances of Shakespearean monologues. And he was very successful in that realm until he started to develop a problem, hoarseness in his, in his voice and went to a doctor, went to specialists. And at the time, nobody could really help him get through these problems he was having with his voice. So he started a process of developing an awareness, a very acute awareness of how he was controlling his body and how his mind was um, interacting with that control. And on a very minute level um the way that we hold ourselves in terms of how our posture works and how the structural um the muscular structure of our body um the skeleton um each individual part there is on a neurological level we are sort of in every part of our life the the developmental part of our life of learning how to walk learning how to talk learning how to sit learning how to eat learning how to play a trumpet, learning how to give a monologue. Each one of these things is, is a thing that you, that you work on through the, the pedagogy and the technique of that realm. But while you're working on that thing, 
there's something going on in the connection between how your mind is habitually holding your body, how your mind is forming words with your tongue. All of these things are going on and they have an incredible effect on something like playing the trumpet, right? Mm -hmm. Also, there's this whole, we have emotions, we have, you know, neurological, uh, psychological habits, we have relationship habits, and all of these things are connected. So it is really just a mindfulness. Um, it is a way of discovering for oneself and through the process of being taught. And is this throughout um, the day or is this like a specific time that you allocate for like a session of being yes. especially mindful? Right. So it is throughout the day. So what when, when you are uh, a student of the Alexander Technique, what you're you're accessing and, and paying attention to what's happening when you're doing any activity. That's, that's essentially you become a interested in what's happening with your mind and your body as you go throughout your daily life. And one takes lessons in the Alexander technique. So you go to a teacher. I have a teacher that I've been going to for 11 years now, who is an incredible teacher. And what normally happens is that during the course of a lesson, it's about an hour. You'll sit in a stool and the teacher will put their hands on you and adjust the way that you're sitting and bring you in and out of the chair. Um, basically, very simple physical movements throughout until the, basically the end of your life. And within that movement, there is a pattern of how each one of us is using ourselves right? Mm -hmm. So you become a student of how you are moving. And what you begin to realize is that there is a pattern. There is, there are things that you um, start to understand about the way you're holding yourself in these simple activities. And then it starts to bleed into the rest of your life. So I'm walking down the street and I'm recognizing, oh, I could be releasing myself into more length throughout my spine, you mm -hmm. know, and that will have an effect in the way that I breathe. And my breathing will have an effect on the way that I see and relax my eyes. And, you know, there's a, there's a whole thing. Our experience is not segmented. It is one thing, right? See, that kind of stuff is so interesting to me. My problem is that I know that if I did what you did and I went to a lesson, there would be one day, because I know if I was having a great day and I woke up and I felt really good, I would go to that and I would be completely in it. But I know that there would be one day where for some stupid reason, I'm like pissed off about something dumb and I'm going to be sitting there going, what the hell am I doing? I, I, I going over, I would go like stir crazy. Does that ever happen where even, because I, I know I could be in it because I love that kind of stuff. And I, I, I know uh, one of my, one of the most probably impactful people in my life was this, this drummer named Dom Femulero. And he was all about posture and knowing where your hands are, knowing how tight certain muscles are and how loose certain things are but i just i know that that kind of thing i'd have a bad day and i feel like i don't know if i could get through something like that thinking like ah shit i wish i was you know taking a shower or something or sleeping right now does that ever happen you go to something oh, like yeah. that oh all the time i mean you're 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 engaging with you're engaging with everything that you are mm -hmm. so yeah so you know making choices about how I'm using my mind 
is part of it, right? Mm-hmm. How I'm using my mind in order to, to direct my physical movement, but also what is a bad day? You know, there's a, there's a, maybe you're sort of slumped over. Maybe you're not breathing in an easy way. Maybe you're not long and, you know, I mean, long, like throughout your torso. Yeah. Maybe you're condensing yourself. Maybe you're holding your breath. So there's a physical component to it. And I've found that there's always a, there's always a thought. There's a lot of things going on in my head that I would, that I, that I want to change. And that's what the process of mindfulness is about is engaging with those things, understanding that they're there and looking at them so that, you know, and in coming into contact with them so that you develop choice over whether or not your bad day, whether you have control over that. Are you naturally focused and are you good at that kind of stuff naturally or did that take time? No, I'm terrible at that. I, I, the reason why I think I've always done mindfulness practices is that my mind is, is a mess. You know, my, um, my body's a mess, you know, and I'm not, I'm naturally anxious. I'm mm-hmm. naturally self-critical. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> so it's, so it wasn't something that was just part of your routine. And basically this was an extension of it. It was almost like, it was almost like a full alteration. It's something mind, mindfulness, meditation, yoga. These are all things that I've prescribed to myself over the course of my life because I know somewhere in myself, I think subconsciously that I need help. I, you know what? I've, I've always thought I should do stuff like that. Cause I am exactly like you. I'm naturally anxious and I'm always like, I don't, I don't know about you. Do you have those, are you able to focus on something say like music or whatever productive thing you're doing, are you able to focus if you're having like an awful, awful day? Are you the kind of person, cause like I know my roommate, he can have the worst day of his life and he can just shut it out and just go, go to work, which honestly I is literally, if I would kill someone to have that ability, are you the kind of person who could do that? No. Yeah. It's the same thing. I mean, I, you know, um, I would, when I was in college, I would meditate for, 30 minutes that when, when you meditate or when I, what, what in the Alexander technique, it's called directing oneself. Mm-hmm. So there are, there's a way of holding oneself that naturally it's, it's the, the most natural posture for a human body. And when you release yourself into that natural posture that your body knows through evolution that it's supposed to be in, Right instead of allowing for your mind to hold you in a less ideal posture, when you do that, your thoughts will change. You ever think about going into this as like a, a profession and becoming a teacher on your own? Yeah. How, how significant are those thoughts? Are those vague ideas or is that a, a serious consideration? It's become, this process has become and this discipline has become very much a part of my musicianship. So um, whether or not I explore it as a profession is not really important to me, but I, it has helped my life so much. And it's really opened me up to, to things that I think are incredibly valuable in terms of how I deal with my experience again and my experience as a human being. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So it will be a part of my life in, in one way or another. And I do find that the more I'm able to learn about this process and this discipline for myself, the more when I see other musicians who are interested, I, I have a natural inclination to want to share that information with them. Did this, this kind of meditation and, and this method affect, did it inspire the name for the, the idealist record? Uh, no, I mean, I was thinking, I, I think when I, when I was thinking about idealist, um, that, that name, I was sort of, this is 2015, right? Mm -hmm. my, you know, this is during Obama's presidency. Um, and I always find this kind of interesting because a lot of the stuff that I wrote about, um, was about, you know, money in politics, um, was about the effect of religious thought and sort of group thought or like nationalist thought on individuals, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a thing that in the United States of America, in every country, but particularly in the United States, we are a very religious country. So it's and safe for me to assume that you are, are not a very religious person. I'm, I was raised Catholic, but I'm essentially agnostic now. And I don't have any problem. I'm the same with way. Yeah, yeah, cool. Catholic too? Well, it was my, my father's side was Catholic. So whenever I was with my, my father, it was always the like, you know, it'd be like if I went to go see my grandmother, we'd you'd go to like the 30 minute Saturday night, uh, uh, whatever it's called, mass. But it was mostly um, Methodist and Presbyterian. But it, now, honestly, I think a big part of it is I stopped going to church because I came to the city and I was so busy with school that, you right. know, no one was making me go to church. And it basically, I became more agnostic. And I don't have any, it's not like a negative. It's not like, oh, if you believe in God, I hate you. Or if you don't right. believe in God, I think you're the greatest person in the world. Or if you're unsure, which, you know, I think a large amount of agnostic people are basically like not probably they don't believe in God, but it's not like a strict, oh, I, you know, hate the idea of it. It's more it's more the religion of it that is that has the issue with it. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. But yes, a little bit of Catholic. I went on a huge tangent there for absolutely no reason. Uh, <laughs> a little bit of Catholic, but mostly Methodist and Presbyterian. Sorry, continue. Right. Right. And yeah, I, don't, um, I think I'm not sure exactly what I was talking about before, but in, in terms of the idealist, um, you know, it, it was kind of poking fun at myself to a certain degree. Um, I do... You know, of course, like I think many people I have, I, I would like for the, for the world around me and for, you know, countries, human beings to experience more um, of a sense of transcendence, you know what I mean, in, in their lives. And, I, you know, I, I believe that there's a lot of inequality you know what I mean? Absolutely. In the world. And I, and, uh, and I'm also, when I, when I named the album idealist, it's also po poking fun at myself because an idealist is someone who, you know, has this sort of pie in the sky idea of how the world is. And I am that way. I'm kind of a dreamer more than a pragmatist in a sense, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of where it came from. My ideas about like how I feel about the world around me, you know, was your, were your parents that kind of, you know, more liberal viewing type of people, even though they were, they're Catholic. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, one of the things about Catholicism is that it's, you know, it's kind of like, it's more of like a place for people to come and bring their family and Mm -hmm. have a little bit of time to reflect. You know, it's, Catholicism is, you know, it's much less of the fire and brimstone, you're going to go to hell, more kind of like, we should all reflect on what we should be grateful for, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you, so you never had issues after you were, you're coming out with music and it is, you know, political. You never had issues from extended family members coming to you and saying like, hey, you know, no. I like the music, but not, not so much the, the, the opinions. No, no, no. They, yeah, yeah. They, I, I think if they're listening to the lyrics at all and if, my, if the lyrical content is coming across at all, you know, it's, it's it, like you said, you know, I'm not, it's sort of, for me, it's about, trying to question through a song the what happens when people become fundamentally um, religious, where the way that they organize the world around them is based on something that is ultimately not in, uh, not in accordance with reality. Or their control, honestly. Yeah, or, well, I mean, I, I mean in the sense that, like, if you you know, I, I feel like one of the things that I feel is true about being alive is that it's, it's good to, to have faith. You know, it's good to think about things that are larger than yourself. On the other hand, you know, the world, the universe, the community of human beings on the planet, the, you know, the, all other living things are larger than yourself too. I don't think that there's any reason to go outside of experienced reality in order to have an experience, you know, an experience of like spirituality. And so you're talking I, about like the you, you hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic drugs, stuff like that. <laughs> well, that's a whole nother thing. That's sort of met, like I was saying before, that's like a metaphysical experience of life. Right. And there's value to, 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 um, I think there's, there's, there's a ton of value to exploring what it is to be metaphysically, alive right to to questioning now what i take issue with is when people define what they believe that the metaphysical experience of a human being is and then use that definition to um say that your experience is wrong your experience is right and when really the, the way that the way the, the way that you're coming about this definition has no basis in reality. So it's so cultish. How, yeah, it's sort of, yeah. I mean, you know, and again, t- people are all different. So there are people who are religious who would agree with me on this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I do think that I, you know, I'm talking about the song bombs and a wine, you know, what I was questioning in, in the lyric of that song is what type of effect does it have on the human mind to be thinking in that way. That can God basically just take all of this terrible stuff and make it, you know, something beautiful and basically you don't have to worry about it. He'll just fix it. That kind of idea. Yeah. Well, and also sort of like we are, you know, this is our tribe. We're the Christians. They're the Muslims. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like at, at the time, this is 2015, you know, I was, I was, um, I was thinking about war. I was thinking about the Iraq war, which made a huge impact on my life and thinking about terrorism and how we as a culture and as a society, many people um, for, you know, it's a political, um, it's a political tactic 
you know, I think to, 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 to get people excited about there are these people who, and of course this is post 9-11 and that was a terrible event. And there is such a thing as terrorism. And the thing about terrorism is that that's just the other side of the same thing, that there are people who are Islamic extremists who through whatever struggles they've had in life have latched onto something that is extra real, that is outside of what we see in terms of you and I, for example, or me and any other person just being humans, you know, then there's all these beliefs that say that you, you, um, that essentially can justify violence. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get like, uh, self-conscious isn't the right word, but are you ever nervous to put these, you know, your, your political opinions in your music in terms of like, uh, I'm afraid that if I say the, like, I want to say what I want to say, but if I say the wrong thing, like, damn, you know, it seems like you can't do anything. Somebody might come after you. Is that, is that a concern for you? Or is that just, just, you're just like, I'm saying what I'm going to say. And that's how it is. It's definitely a concern. It definitely was when I was putting out those songs and because I, because I feel like on the one hand, like my, my ideas about the world are not final. You know, they're not, I'm in a process of learning and understanding more myself. So if I write a song about something that I feel passionate about and it has political or social or religious overtones, um, it's what I feel in that moment. And, and also, you know, when you, one of the things you start to realize when you start to write lyrics is that people actually interpret them in all sorts of different ways. Mm-hmm. regardless Absolutely. of how you intended them. So that's always going to be an issue. And when you start to tread in the anything outside of, you know, baby, I love you. I want to spend every day with you. Like when you start I want to, to hold tread your those, hand. Yeah. I want to hold your hand. I Still mean, Still a great song. Fantastic oh, an amazing song. song. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, I wish I, if I, 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 you know, I'd throw away all my songs if, if that was one of mine, you know, and <laughs> I'd trade them for any Beatles song. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, so it it it, it get and, and particularly now we're in a we're in a time where most of us know and I think realize that the way that people talk to each other on social media and have conversations on social media is not the way that they talk to each other in real life. It's the absolute worst. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah. It's miserable because it's like I know this person it doesn't mean what they, like they say all this stuff and I'm like I know this is bullshit. You don't actually want to say this awful thing about this person. Would you say that to them in person? No you wouldn't. No like half the stuff I see people getting in fights. I'm like if you put those two people in a room, there would be a solution in 10 minutes. But instead mm-hmm. it becomes this 300 thread Twitter page and next thing you know there's you know people are fighting and they probably misconstrued what the other person said in the first place. It's interesting. You know what I often think about that I find even a part of this conversation that I find very interesting is that what is <laughs> what is ultimately kind of at stake or what is ultimately driving a lot of this confusion and discord is people's inability to write, <laughs> yeah. to access the English language in a way that is clear and that has that, you know, <laughs> So, so we have, you know, we have essentially a society of people who are, may are, are varying abilities in terms of their ability to convey um, an idea through language. A big <laughs> part of this, sorry, what were you going to say? Well, and then all of a sudden you have things like Facebook and face, Facebook being kind of like the, the beginning of this, 
where these people's inability, myself included, everyone included, your ability to convey an idea through language is all of a sudden incredibly important and nobody's any better at it than they were just before Facebook comes out. Yeah. And you know, it's just, it, it makes me laugh that, you know, people maybe are not really understanding the tone or the ways in which what they're saying could be perceived, the different various ways that people could read something, you know, I mean, inflection is a huge part of language. And, you know, right. like when you're, you could say something totally awful. I mean, this is not, this is not a groundbreaking statement. Everyone has said this, but you could say something awful and put it in a way and then people think it's okay and vice versa. You could say something really nice and you mean wholeheartedly, but if people don't get to see how you say it, see your body and hear the inflections, it can ruin the whole thing. I mean, I think. I would say almost every single argument I've ever gotten with my girlfriend was something that was like literally like you text something and then one of us misconstrues it and we have to be like, oh, no, that's not what I meant. And you right. think about that. That's like the majority of how people communicate. And then sometimes it's, in a, you know, with someone that you know personally in a text, you can sometimes say like, oh, I bet you they meant this. But when you don't know something at all, next thing you know, you're like fighting online with a celebrity because you didn't like something they said on Twitter or something like right. that. It just becomes a big mess. And a lot of times it's just a miscommunication. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah, it's like the medium is really funny. And, and I'll say one more thing about it that I think is, is interesting is that the, the fact that there's no italics mm -hmm. in these, when you type in these mediums, may, maybe in Facebook, but definitely not in, in Instagram, you get lowercase letters, and uppercase letters. So any inflection is either talking or screaming. <laughs> if there was just italics, if there was just italics, then you could have emphasis without having to scream. But don't you think most people would be too lazy to even use them? No, I would, I think, oh my God, I think a ton of people would use italics. I would love to have italics. I love italics. I, I, I feel like I would back. use them, I would use them sometimes, but knowing myself, I feel like I would, There'd be a time where I'd be like, I don't, my thumb is just, I don't want to move it over two inches. Cause I do I'm that. I, I will admit, I do shit like that where I'm just like, oh, well, I could, I could use this letter, but I'll use a different word cause I don't want to move my thumb over another half an inch. I'm the guy who will write you a text that is, has perfect grammar and perfect punctuation. And I will spend the extra time. <laughs> I see, I will do that. That's one thing I will do. A proper punctuation, capitalization. I always capitalize the first word. I hate when I see a text and the first word isn't capitalized. And I almost always end with a period at the end. That's like right. the, but there are times where I'm like, eh, I could definitely use a, an, a better word, something a little bit, makes it look like I have some brain inside my head. Right. But yeah. Yeah, let me ask you one more thing before I let you go. So, you know, talking about the lyrical inspiration coming from politics and, you know, all this socioeconomic stuff. I want to go to your musical inspiration and when I was listening to to Idealist, I kind I made a list of people that I heard as being what I thought would be were inspiration for the sound mm. of the album. Cool. And if you don't mind, I want to go down this list and just I'm going to throw out some names and if you could tell me which ones if any you think were correct in terms of being large influences on the album and which ones I I kind of missed the ball with. The first on the one album being, or on me. Uh on the album, but oh, uh, you know what? Let's well, this was specifically about Idealist. Okay. Um, but I guess like your, your solo music as a whole. Um, okay. Starting with Stevie Wonder. 
Yeah, big time. What about Herbie Hancock? Uh, I mean, yeah, obviously I was a I listened to all of his music, so. James Taylor? Big time, yep. Yeah, I I I, I love that kind of old that singer-songwriter music is so gorgeous. I saw him once. Have you ever seen him live? No, I haven't. I saw him with uh, my favorite drummer of all time is Steve Gadd, like by okay. an absolute landslide. And Absolutely. he was playing in, in on my family's from upstate New York, we're central New York, so it's around Syracuse. And he was in Rochester, New York, because that's where Gadd is from. And um, oh. who was he playing with? Oh, it was Gadd and Chick Corea. It was a wow. freaking, they had, I think they had just come out with an album, something about a, a butterfly. I can't remember the name of the record. And right at the end, was it Steve? Okay, now I'm messing my stories up. I think it might, I did see Steve with Chick, but this might have been Steve with his own band. Anyway, at the end, he's like, I have a special guest. And then they bring out James Taylor for like four songs. And it was, wow. I mean, the, it was in one of the, whatever the, the big Eastman School of Music, whatever their, their big uh, auditorium is. Okay, yeah. It was, have you, have you ever been to the, been there in Rochester? I, uh, maybe. <laughs> can't remember it's it's like the it's the, like i mean I, i'm not from rochester i just have a couple buddies there but it's like the performing place i'm pretty sure because it's yeah, okay i mean it's at eastman and it's this huge auditorium and everyone went wild and it was absolutely it was it was bonkers and it was yeah. phenomenal um, uh, yeah next person is eric obedu uh, yeah absolutely yeah this was specifically the reason i said her was specifically of the the track these words that oh, it had a very eric obedu sound to me Wow. Okay. Cool. Um, and then Joni Mitchell. Yeah. Recently, though, not when I was younger, but but more so when I've started to study songwriting and realize what a genius she is. What about Paul Simon? Um, he's one another one of those guys where it's like I like Graceland and I like uh, Simon and Garfunkel, but um, he's not the guy I would have, as a younger person, reached for his whole catalog. Um, and and lastly, and this one is this is this one is basically just because of idealists, but Bonnie Raitt, would you say? Oh, interesting. She? I love Bonnie Raitt. Again, you know, not someone who um, whose catalog I listen to extensively. Mm -hmm. I did. I I do have a story to tell about Bonnie Raitt, though, um, which is amazing, and I I guess I just want to tell it because, anyways, we Snarky was in Byron Bay in Australia. There's a festival down there called the Byron Bay Music Festival. It's a beautiful festival. It's like, you know, like kind of a big rock festival and blues festival. And Bonnie was there and we met her for, you know, a few minutes backstage. She's the sweetest person. She's, you know, the, the red and gray hair and just this just beautiful, wonderful, wonderful, like soulful woman. And of course we saw her play. Um, and she she's saying, I can't make you love me. You know what I mean? Oh my God. That is that is first of all, that song's heart wrenching. Right. But freaking phenomenal. That is one of the best songs I think that has ever been written, genuinely. Such a such a right, exactly. Like it 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 puts you in a place. It's also a really interesting perspective on a love song that I think I haven't heard in a lot of other songs. But this this woman took this song. And Sarah Vaughn the hell out of it. She took the <laughs> melody and did crazy things with it. She put rhythmically put words that I in completely different places. It was like 
it, it blew my mind. It was, it was like some Sarah Vaughn shit, mm-hmm. you know, where yeah. she's like, just like, how did you put that there? You know? Sarah Vaughn has, I think, I think Sarah Vaughn has the best rhythm of any singer I've ever heard, genuinely. Yeah, she's definitely, yeah, exactly. She's definitely one of the, uh, one of the, in that realm of, of kind of like playing with, with the, the melody and stretching it in that way. Mm-hmm. The only sort of, I think, the, the contender where Sarah would go toe to toe with is Joao Gilberto. I like don't. the way that he places the melody is insane. Oh, Joao Gilberto, the, the, um, the Brazilian um, bossa nova, like. I pro- well, by the name, I honestly, going to be honest, I don't know, but I'm sure I would, because my, oh. you say he's Brazilian? Yeah, I mean, he's one of the creators of, um, you know, bossa nova. Okay, you, you, you caught you caught me you caught me laughing, but uh, yeah, yeah. My, what, one of my teachers like his whole life is basically dedicated to Brazilian music. So if he heard me say that, I'm he would he lives in yeah, Queens. He'd get on a train right now and he'd come beat the shit out of me. Yeah, you're in trouble right now. I'm gonna tell you this is I've, this I've is had, this is a huge figure. I've, I've had a I've had a poppy last couple of years, so I'm a little bit out of out of touch. Oh, you're fine, man. I'm just excited for you. You know. Um, it, you know, let me let me give you one album to 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 go away with that you'll love. It's it's Joao Gilberto. So it's it's um uh the it's the Brazilian name, kind of like I think it's like John or something in, mm-hmm. in Portuguese. J O A O. And there's like a tilde over one of those words, and Gilberto is G I L B E R T O. And like you might know a record Stan gets, like guess Gilbert guess Gilberto. Okay, like yeah, 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 yeah. Right. That's Joao Gilberto. Right? Oh, okay. Now that, so, that connects the dots. Right. So there's a record called Amoroso, I believe, which I think is is like lover or something like that in Portuguese. And all of the arrangements, it's this orchestrally arranged. Um, I mean, this guy wrote um, Besame Mucho, you know, like he wrote, I think he wrote, maybe I'm, maybe I'm making this, maybe that was Jobim. Now we're getting into my ignorance, but um it's okay. I, I embarrassed who, myself enough a minute ago, so say whatever you want. <laughs> we'll just be embarrassed together. Let's do um, it. This, this, all you need to know is this album's amazing. Joao Gilberto Amoroso. Uh, the, the, the string arrangements are by a guy named Klaus Oberman, mm-hmm. who is huge as an arranger in the world of, um, of, of arranging. And uh, yeah, check it out. Uh, put on some noise canceling headphones or a nice <laughs> i gotta go get my apple airpods max now so i can go listen to him but mike thank you so much for joining me today i really appreciate it absolutely scotty it was my pleasure man it was a good conversation thank you well stay safe uh i i, I hope that you get to get back into the, the city and start gigging again i mean i hope that for for everybody especially for all now of us man all, for the, all any do you hear jazz standards there? closing I heard about it. It was really sad, man. That I, honestly, that was my favorite room um, sonically. I love the fact that the room was so open, but sonically, it was honestly. I'm not making this up. It's my favorite room to hear music in for jazz clubs. It's an absolute loss. There's there have been a couple places that like if like they went out like I talked about this with Justin actually like 55 bar, which I freaking love because it's so it's such a it's so small and it's such a dump, but it right. has such a New York vibe to it. If that totally. place went out, you know, it didn't seem like any of them were actually going to go out. You're like, yeah, they're in, they're in trouble, but they'll be fine. Now jazz standard. And it's, let's just hope that that doesn't, that's not contagious to the other venues. Man, to God. you know, I was going to say a second ago, all, if there's any musicians out there, you know, listen and just stay strong. All yeah, of y'all, all y'all. And, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll get, 
we'll get through it together, you know? Absolutely. Thank you for the positive last words, Mike. Thank you so much. Everyone yeah, who listened, I appreciate you all being here. Thank you for your comments, everybody. Um, we'll be live next week with Richard Bukas. Yeah, next week. I got to keep my schedule straight before I start talking. Thanks, Mike. And I'll see you all <laughs> later. Thanks a lot, dude. All right. Wow. 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 Wow.